welcome to another episode of the Reformation Roundtable podcast. My name is Joe Stout, and this podcast is a ministry of Christ Covenant Church in Lewis County, Washington. During each episode, you will discover the sermons, exhortations, discussions, and interviews from our various weekly gatherings. Christ Covenant Church is a historically reformed and evangelical church that has been serving the greater Centralia Chehalis area since May of 2021. We meet for worship each Lord's Day to sing psalms and hymns, confess our historic faith, hear the word faithfully proclaimed, and celebrate together the Lord's Supper. Throughout the week, we go out into the world to build the kingdom of Christ right here in Lewis County. If this sounds like a vision for you, we would love to have you join us. Head on over to lewiscounty.church, that is lewiscounty.church, where you will find a calendar of events as well as current times and locations for worship. Please enjoy the following audio. This morning's scripture for the message is from Romans 1, verses 16 and verse 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel... For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning and we ask you that our hearts would be prepared to receive your word with conviction and power. Let the truth infiltrate us and let it, let it guide us and drive us. Lord, we pray continually for your mercy, and you give it so readily, and we are so grateful to you. Lord, bless each and every one of us this morning as we continue to worship you in spirit and in truth. And we pray it in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. Please have a seat. I received a couple comments from last week's sermon about the uh, that had to do with the brevity of the sermon, so I'm going to fix that this morning. <laughs> but uh, last week we did a uh, we took a good look, I believe, into uh, verse 16 of Romans 1, and we considered reasons that are embedded in that particular scripture, verse 16, where Paul says. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for the power of God and salvation to all who believe. The reasons why certainly Paul was not ashamed of the gospel, but as well reasons why we should not be ashamed of the gospel. The reasons, some of the reasons that we, we talked about were the, was the fact that the gospel is good news. That the gospel is the way of salvation. That it's God's way of salvation, not man's way. That it is the power of God it is a message for everyone and good news for all who believe. And God has revealed this way of salvation to sinners. And it is the righteousness from God. So, invariably, when the message comes from this pulpit here at Christ Covenant Church, it's going to be gospel. And then we'll look at the gospel, and it's going to be gospel. 
And as I am wont to do when I have the privilege of ascending this pulpit and delivering the Lord's Day message, when there is a particular um, theme or word or, or something that we happen to be looking at, in this case, gospel, I always go to my shelf. I, for a change, I stay away from my computer, but I go to my shelf and I pull this big book that says Strong's Concordance out of it, and I wanted to look at that. Since the gospel is the reference so prominent in these verses, I did what I typically do and, and, and looked at it. The New Testament mentions the word gospel 101 times. And within the New Testament, Paul specifically mentions the word gospel in his epistles and letters 74 times, which constitutes 73% of the message of God, the word gospel, at least in the New Testament. And that's not necessarily surprising when we consider that Paul has written 13 of the 27 books, maybe 14, but 13 of the 27 books in the New Testament. And within the book of Romans, specifically, he mentions the word gospel 13 times. So, I may not be the sharpest spoon in the shed, but um, I'm thinking that this gospel is a truth that we all should grasp hold of. That is vital and important to us. And it's something that we should meditate on. In fact, I mentioned last week that it's, it's to our benefit and, and almost virtually a command that we preach this gospel to ourselves every day. That we would begin our day with preaching the gospel to ourselves. Because it has this, this effect and this profound effect on us. And I also stand by what I said last week as well. That there is nothing on earth that compares to the, the vital importance of the, that, that, in fact, the most important thing that happens on this planet at any one time is the preaching and the sharing of the gospel. And why does this gospel transmit salvation to those who believe? Paul explains this in verse 17, turning to the language of righteousness to make his point. This righteousness of God, it's a, the Greek word for it being theo, and I butchered that. Thankfully our pastor's here to correct that. But Paul uses this phrase, he only uses it nine times in, in, in his letters in the New Testament. But eight of those times are in the book of Romans, this magisterial tome that the Holy Spirit has inspired Paul to write. So clearly the phrase is significant in the arguments that he makes in this letter. And each occurrence, of course, in this righteousness of God must be considered in its proper context. Because when we think about hermeneutics and when we look at the Bible and look at the Word of God, hermeneutics is important. And there's three principles of hermeneutics in its context and in context and in context. But most agree that the references here and in, in Romans 3, 21 and 22, and in Romans 10, verse 3, I have the same meaning or key in this letter. Let me share those with you. In Romans 3, 21 and 22, Paul says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. In Romans 10, verse 3, Paul says, For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. 
Now, when we think about this righteousness of God and this righteousness, uh, when, when Paul is talking about this righteousness of God in, in early in Romans, in chapter 1, and then, of course, in 3 and 10, there's three interpretations of that that are, are popular uh, as theologians have looked at this and considered it. The first in, uh, popular interpretation is that it's considering God's righteousness as an attribute of God. And we can certainly do that. Absolutely. And righteousness can refer to God's justice in this case. But as Luther figured out long ago, it's hardly good news to a sinner, to disobedient sinners, to learn of God's justice. How is that good news? How does that, how is that, how does that compel you and make you feel? It's true. But we're talking about the gospel here, and we're talking about good news. So when we, want, when we think about that, that this righteousness is an attribute of God, it is vitally, it's vital and it's important. But we want to we wanna consider it in the context and, and under the illumination of good news, if you will. And thus it is more likely, if an attribute of God is in view, it's more likely a reference to God's faithfulness when we kind of look at it and break it down. Now the second way... Um, is to look at this is a righteousness from God. Okay, when we consider verse 17, and that's what I'm kind of hunkered down on this Sunday morning. We're looking here at a status given to people by God, and this interpretation of righteousness from God was championed by the Reformers, of course, and is the traditional view amongst Protestant theologians. This righteousness from God. When God justifies the sinner, God gives that person a, a new legal standing, a new legal standing before him, and that person's righteousness. The divine verdict of the final judgment has already been rendered over sinners whose guilt has been exposed. But in a stunning transaction that has taken place outside the court, the guilt of sinners has been absolved as God, through the death of his faithful son, Jesus Christ, has taken care of the dire consequences of that sin and guilt in a unique sacrifice of atonement. The force of this justification is not simply that a verdict is rendered in a certificate of eternal life issued to the recipients, nor is it legal fiction and as-if righteousness. Like all of God's speech, this verdict is an effective word. An effective word that sets former sinners in a right or righteous relationship with God and anticipates a transforming divine work in their lives. So not only are we forensically declared righteous, but there is also an outcropping. There is something that is born in us because of this as well. And the third way to, that is looked at here as far as this righteousness uh, of God is righteousness done by God. And an action of putting in the right or making things right that is being done by God. God intervenes to set things right. God intervenes to, to fix what has gone wrong with this world. Now the fact that this righteousness, as Paul says, is based on faith, favors the second view that it is a righteousness from God. 
It is the righteousness from God that the reformers looked at and, and considered to be uh, the, the accurate way to interpret this. Now this is key when we consider this righteousness from God. The evidence against us is staggering. Luke talked about that a moment ago. And we see that. And to understand why something is good news, it can only be good news when we understand that there is something wrong. You know, it can, you can apply that to anything. Well, your basement's got eight feet of water in it, but I have good news for you. I found the leak, or whatever it is. But here's what Paul does. Remember I, t- I spoke a little bit last week about the fact that as Paul sets up the book of Romans and as he, as he proceeds from chapter 1 uh, through, through the early chapters of Romans before we get to, that, before we get to Romans 8, that Paul sets, a, sets up a case against humanity, that he, he sets up a case in such a manner that even law schools have looked at it as a model for how to indict someone the way Paul goes about meticulously and methodically setting this up. So as, we, as we're going to consider the gospel and the righteousness of God, here's what Paul has to say. And he says it in chapter 3 of Romans. It's a passage that is obviously uh, it comes from the Old Testament, which Paul is, is inclined to constantly refer to. But here's what Paul says, as it is written, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive, the venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. End of the quote from Paul from Romans chapter 3. We have Paul here lancing the wound, uh, open the wound of sin that infects every human being. This is, this is hard, hard language here. It's hard, to, it's hard to look at ourselves perhaps and go, boy, am I really that bad? But remember, I'm going to make a point here in a little bit about why it is that bad, why we are that bad. You know, if you go, um, for you young men who are going at some point in your life perhaps to buy an engagement ring for your for the woman you want to uh, marry, and you go to the jewelry store, what will happen is you may see a ring that looks beautiful with a, that has a diamond setting in it or whatever. And when, the guy, when you say, I want to look at that one, the, the, the jeweler, he's a very astute person. He's going to pull it out, and he's not going to grab a piece of copy paper and set that ring down on it. What he's going to do is he's going to, grab a, he's going to grab a piece of very fine black velvet. And he's going to lay it out. And then you're going to go, wow, that looks really nice. But then he's going to set that diamond on there. And what does that do? It allows you to really see, see the nuance of that diamond. And he's going to point out all the facets of it. All the cut clarity and all the other, other mumble jumble that goes along with jewelry. 
But the thing is, is that backdrop of that black velvet is going to make is going to make it very distinct. So as we consider this this passage in Romans three, what does that do for us when we hear the good news? What does it do? What does it do for us? Well, this righteousness from God is the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Righteousness is revealed in the gospel. Paul states this, and the gospel concerns Jesus Christ. In Romans 1, 1 through 3, right out the beginning of, the, of this letter to the Romans, Paul says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets, in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who is descended from David according to the flesh. Oh boy, we're going to start reading Matthew and oh my goodness, here's a, here's a genealogy here, but there's a point to that genealogy. All of this, but Paul succinctly and, and, and said in such brevity here, but with such power. So it is Christ who has this righteousness and it is from him that we both learn about it and receive it. Jesus is righteous in two senses. He's intrinsically righteous. After all, he is God. And that is why he could say, as a fully human being, he could say these things. And for instance, John chapter 8, he says, I always do the things that are pleasing to him, to my Father. And he says as well, which one of you convicts me of sin? Now let me, let me tell you something if you're not aware of it. That's something that none of us can say. None of us. Which one of you convicts me of sin? Well, my goodness. I, re, I remember hearing a story about the preacher Billy Sunday who was going to go preach at, a, at a, a small town. And he wrote the mayor and he said, Hey, you know, I want to be praying for the sinners in your town, would you send me a list of these, these sinners that you have in your town? Well, what did the mayor do? He sent him the phone book. You know, that's, that's where we are. But you know what? Christ can say that. That's the beauty of this. That's the wonder of it. That's why, that's why we sing the songs we sing. That's why every, everything, everything about this morning is about Christ and, and raising him up and glorifying him and worshiping him. So he's intrinsically righteous, but he's also, he's also achieved perfect righteousness. Let me quote a, a short quote here from Martin Lloyd-Jones, who I quoted last week as well, talking about Jesus. He rendered a perfect obedience to the law. He kept it in every jot and tittle. He failed in no respect. He fulfilled God's law completely, perfectly, and absolutely. Not only that, he has dealt with the penalty meted out by the law upon all sin and upon all sins. He took your guilt and mine upon himself, and he bore its punishment. The penalty of the law was meted out upon him, and so he has honored the law completely, positively and negatively, actively and passively. There is nothing further the law can demand. He has satisfied it all. We refer often to this work of Christ as the finished work of Christ. 
As Jesus hung on the cross, he said, to tell us, die, it is finished. And we rest in that. We grasp that. We, 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 find, we find a completeness in that that emboldens us and brings us such great comfort. In Christ, we can see that this righteousness truly exists. It exists and can be offered to us from God. God offers this righteousness of Jesus Christ freely, apart from any need to work for it on our part. It was this discovery of this truth that transformed Martin Luther and and launched the the Reformation. Luther knew that Jesus exhibited perfect righteousness, and it was the standard by which God would judge all mankind. And I told you I would make a reference to this a moment ago. That the standard is not someone else that you, you admire. It's certainly not me. It's not our new past. It's, it's God who sets the standard. And the standard is perfect righteousness. Luther knew that Jesus exhibited this perfect righteousness. And again, it's the standard by which he would judge all mankind. The harder Luther worked, and if you know Luther, you know that he worked. You know that he endeavored to be the most pious person in the room, always. The more he knew he did not, the more more effort he poured into this to to be righteous, to try to attain that justification, the more he knew he did not love God. He actually hated God for making the standard of righteousness so impossible. And you go, wait a minute, you're talking about Luther here. How can you say that Luther hated God? Well, uh, I'm just quoting Luther. Luther said this, I had no love for that holy and just God who punishes sinners. I was filled with secret anger against him. I had a man at at the mission when I was working there, his name was Joe. No relation to our Joe, or any other Joe in here. But I remember he came to my office one day, and he said, Les, I'm really struggling. I have a problem. I said, hey, come on in, man. He sat down. I said, what's going on? He said, you know, I just, I keep, I, I work so hard. I work so hard every day, and yet at the end of the day, when I take the measure of myself, and I'm using a bit of my own language here, not his, he said, I just see, I just see that I've fallen so short. I said, well... Just tell me about it. Tell me what's going on with you. He said, can I show you? I said, sure. So I got up and I went down. I went down the hallway to his room and I went into where his, his bunk was and his locker and all that. And on the wall, he had this chart. And this chart was wonderfully made. It was beautiful. I was looking at him going, you made this? And he goes, yeah. Neat, very organized. And on the chart was a list of things to do. Things that he wanted to accomplish every single day. And what he did is he graded himself every day, and he gave a numeric value to each and every one of those things. And he said, you know, sometimes on this one I'm a five, and on this one I'm a two, and on this one I'm a five or a three or a one or whatever. And I looked at him, and I looked at everything that was going on, and I just went, oh, boy. I said, Joe, come on back. Let's talk. Well, he was, Joe was exerting himself and striving to be pious and to fulfill the law 
himself. So that, that began a series of conversations with him about the grace of God. And, and, and pretty much in alignment with what we see from Martin Luther here. But of course Luther comes to understand that he had misunderstood God's intention in revealing the nature and existence of his righteousness, of God, God's own righteousness to Luther. It was not revealed so that men and women would strive for it in futility, a la my friend Joe at the rescue mission. It was revealed as God's, what, free gift in Christ, so that those who came to know Christ would cease striving in what? Rest in him. That we would rest in Christ. Faith now, faith is the channel by which sinners have the righteousness of Christ reckoned to them. It's by faith. And it's funny that Paul almost seems to anticipate what's going to be happening in the 16th century. The role that the reformers would, the, the war that the, war, the reformers would wage against uh, uh, and in support of uh, justification by faith and faith alone and not of works. Because remember this, this behemoth that, that, that Luther stood in front of, that Luther faced down. That it was not by works, it wasn't by Christ plus works. It wasn't by Christ by some works. It wasn't 99% God and 1% less or anything like that. Luther came to understand that it's from God and entirely from God, and that's important for all of us to be reminded of. Hebrews 11, verse 1, we're talking about faith now, and I want to talk about faith for a moment. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen. And initially, Luther thought what? He thought faith was a work, and therefore determined something to be attained. And hearkening back to some of the things Luke was talking about in his exhortation this morning, doesn't that sound familiar? Doesn't that sound familiar, this, this, this effort that goes in to things, this 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 lack of distinction between law and gospel in modern-day evangelicalism. You know, all the things that pastors will get up and preach to their church. Do this, do this, do this, do this. Do, do, do when it's already been done. And done by Jesus. Faith is not a work, it is believing God and Take note that I have not said believing in God, but rather believing God. I always think sometimes about Job and, and his friends and all of that. And I think Martin Bucer said that you know one of the distinctions between Job and his friends was his friends talked a lot about God, but Job talked to God. And Christ has made that way for us. Faith consists of three elements. It consists of knowledge. It's not merely an attitude of the mind. It involves content, this faith that we have. It involves content. There must always be an object of which we place, place our faith in. And it's, that object is of paramount importance to us. 
It is the object that allows or causes faith to move us. When you think about it, we, we talk about Christ being the object of our faith, and he certainly is, and if he's not, he should be, right? But think about just, just mundane things in your life. You know, when I was a soldier, I used to jump out of these perfectly good airplanes that Dennis flew around in with a parachute on my back. You know, and me and, me and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of other guys, we would, we would, the door would come open, we would be way up in the sky, and we would jump out into the open air. And we had faith. We had faith that our parachute would open. But my faith wasn't in the parachute. I mean, I wanted to look up and see a whole lot of silk above me. But here's the thing, and here's what, here's what happens. That there was, there, was a, there was a unit of people called the riggers, and the riggers, what they did is they took these chutes that we jumped up, used, and they would gather them up, and they took them back to where they worked, and they went through every chute, and they investigated, and they looked at them for rips and tears, and they took all the cords that would get all tangled up, and they would spread them out. And they would lay them out, and then they would fold them back up and, and repack the chute so it could be used again. Okay, so what you're saying is you had faith in your riggers, right, Les? I'm, I'm going to say, yeah, but wait just a minute now. How many of us have, have, have been on the job ourselves and seen others in jobs that just, just mail it in? So I'm like, okay, okay uh, so is my faith in this guy? Well, my faith is in this guy because here's what the army and their infinite wisdom do. The riggers were all jump qualified, and what they would do periodically, once a month or something, they'd line the riggers up, and when they went through, and they randomly gave them shoots out of all these bins that these guys had packed themselves. <laughs> you see what I'm saying, right? You know what? I'm, I'm untangling weeds and... and, and Dust, all this stuff and rips and, and fixing, doing all this stuff to pack it, I may be jumping this thing next week. So you know what? I'm going to pay attention. I'm going to do it. When I look out the little window of my airplane, I'm going to see Dennis walking around underneath the thing, looking at the wings and, and, the, and all the bolts and the landing gear and all that and all the, all the instrumentation because my hope is that Dennis wants to live as bad as I do. When you guys leave today and you go on I-5, <laughs> I'll pray for you. But anyway, when you go on I-5... We're hoping that the person coming at us wants to live as bad as we do. So we put our trust like that. But for us here as Christians, the object of our faith and trust is Jesus Christ. And that's, that's everything. It means everything for us. So as faith consists of knowledge, it also consists of a heart response to the gospel. So it's not simply some manner of intellectual assent. But it involves the love of God for us and saving us through the death of his son, Jesus Christ. And faith consists of a commitment. We now become very possessive. Jesus is not some abstract idea as well to coincide with his intellectual ascent. He is my savior. Jesus is my savior. To echo the, the words of Thomas in John chapter 20. Let me share this with Charles Spurgeon. Faith is not a blind thing, for faith begins with knowledge. It's not a speculative thing, for faith believes facts of which it is sure. 
It is not an unpractical, dreamy thing, for faith trusts and stakes its destiny upon the truth of revelation. Faith is the eye which looks. Faith is the hand which grasps. Faith is the mouth which feeds upon Christ. The phrase, from faith, points to the truth that only by faith are we the beneficiaries of this righteousness. And so it is a faith righteousness as truly as it is a God righteousness. And faith always carries with it the justifying righteousness of God. Now, in verse 17, the appeal of Habakkuk 2, verse 4, is for the purpose of, one of the main purposes for the confirmation of that truth from the Old Testament. And as Luke made reference to earlier about the, that we, we are a church that will continue to be uh, attuned, sensitive, embracing the full counsel of God's word. We've been told by very popular mouthpieces lately, of late, Andy Stanley, that the Old Testament is not relevant, that it's a dusty old book written by dusty old men and should remain under the dust. Well, that's not true. We know that's not true. And we see Paul over and over again. We see the writers in the New Testament, and oh, by the way, we see the Lord himself refer to the scripture of the Old Testament. Watch Jesus respond to the challenge from Satan during his his time in the wilderness. I quoted Frederick Godet, the Swiss commentator, last week, and I'll quote him. He points out that the apostle is so convinced of the unity which prevails between the old and new covenants that he cannot assert one of the great truths of the gospel without quoting a passage from the Old Testament in its support. The point in Habakkuk is that faith is the key to one's relationship with God. It is your faith that, that ties you to God. It's your faith that, that allows you to come to God and be reconciled to God. That faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. The meaning of faith in the New Testament is deepened through its intimate relationship with Christ, who is the object of our faith. But the Old Testament concept in verses like Genesis 15:6, and he, Abraham, believed the Lord, and he, God, counted it to him as righteousness, and, and Habakkuk 2.4 that we just, we just cited, uh, shares with the New Testament faith the quality on absolute reliance on God and his word rather than on human abilities, activities, or assurance. Now, there are, you know, there's, there's, there's Christianity, And then there's everything else. No matter how religious it is. There's Christianity, this, this understanding it is by faith. That we are tied, that we receive, that this righteousness is from God and only from God. And this justification is reckoned to us by, from faith. Now, I... I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna finish now, and um, I I remembered as I was writing this. Sometimes I sometimes I pause and I get up and do a few laps around the uh, 
room or whatever, to think about how to close a sermon, how to land this plane. And I remembered uh, a few years ago that I, I, was, I was teaching a Sunday school class at a church I was at. And one of, the, one of the things I like to do is I like to take truth statements and then support those with scripture. So that's how I'm going to close today. And there's not many of them here. But let me, let me I, want to, I want to finish this message today by really emphasizing that faith, if you are here, if you are here as a Christian, if you are here as a born-again Christian, that it's by faith that you're here. It's by faith that you are born again. And here's, here's the thing. This faith is a gift from God. This faith has not been, you have not fabricated it, you have not synthesized it, you have not worked hard enough for it, that it is a gift from God. And let me show you that. We must remind ourselves finally that faith comes from God in the form of, of a gift. This is my true statement here. If the receiver of faith could do anything whatsoever to deserve or earn the gift, that person would have every what? Right to boast, right? And when you hear that, when you hear that true statement, for many of us, we immediately go where? We go to Ephesians, we go to chapter 2 of Ephesians, we go to verse 8 and 9 of of chapter 2 of Ephesians. For by grace you have been saved through what? Faith. And this not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. My next true statement. By knowing faith comes from God alone, it should position us to not think more highly of ourselves than we ought. And we go again in the book of Romans to chapter 12, verse 3. For by, great, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of what? Faith that God has assigned. My next statement would be, Paul understood faith in Christ was given to him despite his own sinful life. In 1 Timothy 1, 13 and 14, Paul says, Formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Another true statement, the Bible specifies the way or means God gives faith to people. So faith comes what? From hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Again, from the book of Romans chapter 10. And it's good for anyone who desires faith to ask for it. In Luke 11, verses 9 and 10, Jesus said this, And I tell you, the Savior said this, And I tell you, and it will be given to you, Seek, and you will find, Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. Positionally, if you are in that position to be asking, seeking, and knocking, God has already done something in you. He has already done a work in you. Because we, we know when we look at the full counsel of God that it already says no one, remember Paul, what Paul said in Romans chapter 3, no one seeks after God, no, not one. 
In Romans 8, 7, Paul says, you know, we don't seek after God, not because we don't want to, but because we can't. So if you're, if you're knocking, if you're seeking Christ, guess what? He's in no way going to cast you aside or cast, he's going to respond to that. He says so. Another true statement here, talking about faith. It's good to ask for an increase or ask for stronger faith. I know I do this constantly, almost nonstop. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith in Luke 17, verse 5. And I would invite you back. I think pastor's going to begin a, uh, a series in the Gospel of Mark. But of course, in chapter 9 of Mark, we hear immediately this, this boy's father cried out and said, because Jesus asked him, what do you mean if, if, if I can? And dealing with a demon in his boy, if you can help me. And Jesus said, what do you mean if I can? And the man saw his, his mistake, if you will, and he said, immediately the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe, but help my unbelief. In Luke 22, another true statement here, Jesus prayed for Peter and the apostles. Not, not that he or they would be delivered from trial and affliction, but rather that his faith would be strengthened. Jesus said this to Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus continues to intercede for his people? to intercede for his saints, that our strength would be strong, or our faith, rather, would be strong. Do we, do, we, do we hold on to that? And my final true statement, as with any gift from God, it is our, responsi our responsibility to exercise that gift, to exercise that gift of faith. And let me close with a, uh, let me finish this with just um, a few verses from Romans to substantiate that. It's our responsibility to exercise that faith, to work it out with fear and trembling. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. I would like to close this message now this morning with a prayer. And I would ask you to join me in this prayer in your spirit and your heart and bow your heads. Heavenly Father, the righteousness of Christ enables us to stand before the infinite righteousness of God. This righteousness is the righteousness of justification, for, for without this you are a consuming fire. The righteousness of Christ is a perfect satisfaction to divine justice in whatever it requires, either in punishing sin or in obedience to the law. Lord, we acknowledge that you cannot forgive without your justice being satisfied. We confess that, apart from Christ, we cannot think a righteous thought. 
speak a righteous word or do a righteous action that is acceptable to you. And we continue our confession to you that Jesus himself came and showed how your justice may be satisfied, your law kept, and wretched, sinful, corrupt man saved. We sing the glories of Christ as we consider that for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Lord, blessed are the souls that are enlightened by the Holy Spirit to see the reality, the certainty, the beauty, the necessity, and the glory of this righteousness. Lord, you fill our bottomless souls, and we shall have enough. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.